Life is never easy for the IRS, but the past few months have been particularly challenging. Budget ups and downs, a long government shutdown, and dealing with a complex new tax code. How has this affected its customers, the nation's taxpayers, and the agency itself? Joining me with highlights of her latest report to Congress, national taxpayer advocate Nina Olson. Ms. Olson, as always, good to have you back. Thank you for having me. All right. Let's begin with the Taxpayer Advocate Office itself was furloughed during the recent shutdown. And how did that affect the work that you do? Well, um, it was very frustrating. And, of course, we came back from 35 days with a huge backlog. You know, my office addresses taxpayers who are experiencing significant hardship as a result of what the IRS is doing or not doing. And Congress itself defined that as people in danger of immediate harm or irreparable injury, meaning they, if something doesn't happen, they cannot be reinstated to their previous position. They will have harm that can't be repaired. And we made the argument that um, to the chief counsel employees who make the determination about who should be furloughed and who shouldn't, that our work was, you know, authorized by Congress and without our being on the job, irreparable harm would occur, which is one of the exceptions under the Anti-Deficiency Act. But we were unpersuasive. So, we were allowed to come in, open the mail, take out the checks that people had sent in, but not be able to address any of the problems that taxpayers had. Um, and that was both very demoralizing um, and really troubling in that the IRS could continue to take collection action because that's protecting government property. And yet none of the rights that Congress has passed to protect taxpayers in the context of collection action were able to be enforced. And I find that very disturbing, and I don't agree with the interpretation that would allow that. And you really can't blame that one on IRS management because they were caught up in the same complex of laws. Absolutely. We have to follow the interpretation of the law. And in fact, IRS leadership was very concerned and the collection employees initially thought they could do things like releasing liens and levies. And then as, you know, we went back to the lawyers, it was more like, no, you cannot. So the bizarre circumstance, like people would call in and say, I want to make an installment agreement, please release this levy on my paycheck. And people would say, we can enter an installment agreement because that's collecting the tax, but we can't release the levy. So your paycheck will still be garnished. And it's like, well, that makes no sense. Frustrating for people all around. Now, every year in your report, you begin with what you call the IRS baseline. So what effect did the shutdown have on the baseline? And what is the baseline? Well, you know, on December 21st or 22nd, when the furlough started, the IRS had really been, had had a very difficult year in the sense that it had a very large inventory of work. It had a new tax law to implement. It redesigned the 1040 um, so that we got rid of all three, ten, you know, the 1040, 1040A, 1040EZ into a single form. And that's like a postcard size, except it's printed out on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper and has six additional schedules that didn't exist before. All of that required an enormous amount of work. And, you know, it was behind because of certain problems with its refund fraud detection system. It had been behind all year 
on releasing refunds that turned out to be legitimate, and it was behind on its a lot of its audits, particularly for the lowest income taxpayers. And so that's where it was entering um, the filing season. And those three, those four, three to four weeks over December and January before the filing season begins is key for the IRS. It's when it really trains its employees on filings, on the filing season. So it's fresh in their mind. And you also are doing things like catch-up work. So if you're behind in audits from last year, you're trying to really get through them so you don't enter the filing season with audits from last year hanging over this year because that might mean you're going to have to freeze this year's return as well and just doubling your work. It's a snowball effect. And that's where it was the day before the shutdown. Wow. So and then you have the shutdown. <laughs> all the work that normally would have happened in those five weeks simply built up. And uh, did IRS employees return then? I guess we know the answer, but do they return to a blizzard of work? Well, they returned to so much pent up need. And and as we pointed out, the, the first week that IRS employees returned, which was, you know, it wasn't yet the filing season and only a portion of the employees were called back to start the filing season, what we found was that there were five million pieces of mail that were just backed up, ready to, that hadn't even been batched for processing. Like, where are they supposed to go in the IRS to be looked at and handled? There were 80,000 responses to last year's earned income credit audits that hadn't been addressed. There were 87,000 amended returns that needed to be addressed. And then another thing that happened was, you know, we have this national distribution center that sends out paper forms and we still get requests for w-2 forms well those were due january 31st and the irs had 170,000 orders and even though employees were working overtime and doing 11,000 orders a day they, the irs announced that they couldn't get those all out by january 31st and they advised employers to file extensions. Well, what that means is it just backs up work. You know, we don't get the W-2s in time. We have to hold refunds back because we can't match them with the W-2s that the employers had sent in. It just goes on and on and on. And is it all exacerbated by the fact that the new tax code is complicated and it's not really comparable to last year's? Right. And we are already seeing that in the first week of the filing season. There's a Part of the, the um, filing process called error resolution, and this is not fraud detection or something. There's just something about the return that a human being needs to look at before we can release it back into processing. And error resolution, um, the returns in error resolution just after the first week of the filing season was up almost 200% from the year before. And we knew that based on 1986, which was the last big tax reform, you know, major tax reform, that there was going to be about a 2% increase in errors. But, you know, we've seen a 200% increase in errors from the year before. And all of those are things that require a human being to look at. So you're going to move somebody that's doing one form of work to look at another form of work. And you just, you know, you just can't keep moving things around without major impact to the system. Sure. And I guess the mirror image of all this is the impact on taxpayers. And how does it look from that external standpoint? 
Yeah, well, you know, the first thing is trying to get through to the IRS on the phone. And um, in my report, I have two charts that really show where we were on answering the phones the day before the shutdown or the week before the shutdown, then the week when employees first came back in January, and then the first week of the filing season, and comparing it to the year before. And we really you know, like before the shutdown, we were we answered you know three quarters of the calls that we're trying to get through to a live person. By the first week of the filing season, we were only answer we were let answering less than half. And then we're, what's really significant is the phone line where we send out letters to taxpayers saying you owe money, call us to make payment arrangements or else we're going to do things like levying on your bank account or garnishing your paycheck. And that line where we're telling people to call us to make payment arrangements for the first week of the filing season was at only 7% of the calls that we're trying to get through got answered. And they had to wait 80 minutes to get through on average. I've never seen a level of lack of service like that. Now, Part of why that happened was 2,000 employees who were going to be able available to answer the calls that week were in training. That training would have occurred the first, you know, the second and third week of January, but people were furloughed. And so when they came back, they had to go into filing season training, so they're taken off of answering the calls. And taxpayers, the first week of the filing season, were frantic trying to find out with the new law, but they just couldn't get through. And they also hadn't been able to talk to the IRS about making payment arrangements. And so they're calling, and they can't get through. Only 7% of those calls got through. All of that erodes you know, confidence in the IRS. It erodes compliance. It creates frustration. And it can create harm for the taxpayer because their bank accounts may be garnished. I hope they have really good music on hold for those 80 minutes. <laughs> They did change the music last year, which was very good, because I think people, when they have to sit there and listen to the Nutcracker Suite, a lovely piece of music, but if you have to listen to it for 80 minutes, you're about to jump out the window. Aside from all of the shutdown-related materials, I mean, your report is required to identify 20 big problems annually, whether there's a shutdown or not. What would you say are the top three outside of these horrible blizzard and that they have to dig out of? Well, you know, the organization of the report this year before the shutdown was to really track the taxpayer's journey through the IRS, you know, from trying to get answers to tax law questions to actually litigating your issue in the tax courts. And so the report is sort of organized as stages, and we actually have pretty nifty roadmaps in the report so that you can find your, sort of find your way, like you can say, you are here in this process and know what the next stage is. So the first three most serious problems are really talking about trying to get answers to your questions before you can even file a return or decide how you're going to file. And during the year, we tested not in a scientific way, but we came up with some scenarios that throughout the year we called the tax law question line of the IRS to see how they would answer them. And some of them were things about the new law, but they were very basic things that you should be able to answer just by reading newspaper articles. Others were about the, the current law that hadn't changed with the new law. So they should have known the answer to that because 
they already knew the answer to that. And some things were things that um, had actually uh, changed with the new law and and there were some wrinkles in it. And we really found that despite the IRS saying that they were going to answer tax law questions throughout the year, particularly on the new law, we just got standard answers that said, we have not been trained on this. Um, we can't answer your question, call back after the first of the year. And that was even to questions that where the old law still continued. So we wow. were really concerned about that. Yeah. And you also mentioned in the report that the IRS has taken to actively discouraging person-to-person conversations, at least in the collections area. Yep. We found that the IRS in its notices, it's trying to push people to online products where you can enter into an installment agreement online. And it you know, and partly it's because they don't have the human beings to answer the phone. So they think of it as a taxpayer service. But what we found was people who do either online or get through to our automated collection system, one of the things they've done is they said, rather than taking financial information from the taxpayers, we're just going to say, can you pay this over six or seven years? You know, divide by 72, the amount of the debt. And taxpayers will go, yes, sure. Yeah. Can I get off the phone with you? Yeah, I'll pay that. What we found is that 40% of the taxpayers who agreed to those payments, when they talked to, you know, this automated collection system part of the IRS, they actually can't afford those payments. They are below what the IRS says are what they need in order to pay their basic living expenses. So not unsurprisingly, about 39% of those taxpayers default on their installment agreements. They can't keep up those payments. And so we're saying, you know, you're really, what you think is really good for the taxpayers, actually harming them. They're making payments that they can't afford to make, and you're not finding out that information. We're speaking with national taxpayer advocate Nina Olson. And what should the IRS do about that? What have you recommended for them? Well, the IRS should be able, and we were able to reproduce this, create sort of an algorithm where it can identify taxpayers, you know, take what we know about their income and their family size from past returns or just our current data, and then compare it to what we say they need to meet their basic living expenses. And if someone is in the range of not being able to meet their basic living expenses, we should put a notation on the account. So anytime that taxpayer calls in, you know, we are alerted that we can't do this automatic divide by 72. We have to have a conversation with the taxpayer. And if we're going to go grab their, you know, levy on their bank account or their wages, if they've got that indication on their account, we need to make a phone call with that taxpayer and really talk to them to make sure we're not imposing harm on them. And let's move on to the issue of information technology, because you bring that up pretty strongly in the report. This has been something that goes back decades for the agency. Over the years, as I've made recommendations to the IRS, you know, can we do this? Can we do that? Often what I've gotten back is uh, it's a good idea, but we can't do this with our technology. And last year, I just arrived at the conclusion that we can't be a 21st century tax administration if we don't replace our core systems. The IRS has as its core official record of the taxpayer's account. Our systems are from the 1960s. They are the two oldest database systems in the federal government, according to the Government Accountability Office. I think they're written in Fortran. I thought it was COBOL, but it turns out to be Fortran. Or is it assembler? Yes, exactly. And so what happens is 
we're trying to patch 21st century technology and programs and hardware and software to these very old systems. And they themselves can only handle so much. And so you create 60 different case management systems to do various things with taxpayer information. And you pull the information out from these old systems, do something else over here, and then put them back in. There's no single place where you get a 360-degree view of what's going on in the taxpayer's life. And so that's why sometimes when taxpayers call up and they say, well, wait a minute, you sent me this notice over here, and the person on the phone says, I can't see what that is. You know, and the taxpayer's thinking, this is nuts. But that's why it's in another system and that employee doesn't have access to that system. We will never be able to create an online account that people could actually use to see like what letter we sent to them. We won't be able to do any of that until we replace those core systems. And yet the IRS has been trying to do that or they've had contracts to do that kind of thing for so many years. What mm-hmm. What's their excuse here already? Well, I think back in the 90s and 80s, they really blew it the the and congress has really remembered that you know where billions were were essentially wasted in efforts to to replace the systems and now over the years it has been but our point has been the the modernization funding for the IRS is only 1% of its budget and um you know the IRS has an 11.3 billion dollar budget and the modernization budget is is 150 million now for 2009 which is just you know 1%. And when you look at that and you think about that the IRS is the accounts receivable department of the federal government it's just like you're never going to get the IT replaced unless you give the IRS a dedicated funding stream that won't be siphoned off among other things and that it's guaranteed for a number of years. So it's not a start and stop and a start and stop like it has been with funding. And Congress, of course, is suspicious of that, and rightfully so because of the record of the IRS. And so what we recommend is that there be an independent third party that come in and, you know, the IRS be request, required to give a plan for what, how it's going to spend this money and how it's going to get from point A to point B very specific with milestones, and then each year before the funds are actually given to the IRS, there still be that independent third party that comes in and assesses how the IRS is doing. So if it gets off track, you know, Congress can say, wait a minute, you know, you're not going to get money until you tell us how you're going to fix this. And that might go some way to getting this change started To me, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when we have to do it. And the sooner we get started, the better it is for taxpayers, the better it is for IRS employees, and the better it is for just the public fisc. We're spending lots of money maintaining ancient systems that we shouldn't have to do. And getting back to the topical now question, you have a rhetorical question what is the way forward? How do we dig out of this mess? That's actually your language in the report. Yeah. How does yeah. the IRS dig out of the mess? Well, as I said, we've got to, the first thing is we've got to deal with the IT. You know, we absolutely have to have that funding. We have to we have to fix the Anti Deficiency Act. You know, um, you can't. This is a federal government issue, but you just can't keep having these threats of shutdown. And it is so disruptive; it will take the IRS twelve to eighteen months 
easily to dig out of where they are now just in terms of work. And and so we have to figure out a way out of the the Anti-Deficiency Act shutdowns. You know, the IT issues, um, this thing about communication with taxpayers, you know, both speaking to them individually, improving our correspondence, informing them of their rights when we're sending them stuff. We've also recommended a few things about um, – uh, the withholding system, could you make it easier for taxpayers in the IRS if you change some, if you actually do some withholding on things like unemployment compensation or or interest or dividends so that maybe they don't have to file returns? And then finally, the IRS really needs to look at everything it does in light of encouraging voluntary compliance. You know, if it doesn't audit, does the taxpayer become more compliant in the future after he or she is audited, or do they become less compliant? And that's just really core. They really need to focus on that. And that will save us money over time, too. National taxpayer advocate Nina Olson. There's much more to the interview. We'll post it in its entirety, along with a link to her annual report, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federaldrive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. Whether in person or remote, open communication with your doctor is key to managing any condition, including heart failure. How have you been feeling? Um, I'm okay. Both are great options to continue having open conversations with your doctor about how you're feeling. I've had less energy. And when you speak openly with your doctor, they're better equipped to help. Visit heartfailuretalks.com to learn more.